Today's reading is from Psalm 22. Psalm 22. For the director of music, to the tune of the door of the morning. A Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am not a but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring liars that hear their prey open their mouth wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my, the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This is God's word. Good evening, everybody. My name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. And it's my privilege to be uh, taking us through Psalm 22 this evening. But happy Easter to you. 
Seriously. <laughs> Easter's about resurrection. It's like speaking to a morgue. Happy Easter. And April Fools. Yes. Who was anybody pranked this morning? Anybody pull off a prank? Oh, 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 wow. We shall find out afterwards. The people around him don't look too impressed, though. Um, let's, uh, uh, actually, my favorite April Fools of all time, I don't know what you think the greatest one is, the spaghetti tree incident on the BBC. Um, you can watch the video online. But I think the best one ever pulled off was by a guy called Oliver Porky Bicker. When your middle name's Porky, people shouldn't trust you. But uh, he, um, he lived in the Alaskan town of Sitka. And in March 1973, he set up the greatest April Fools of all time. Uh, there was a big dormant volcano above the, uh, above the town. And over the space of a few weeks, with a friend who happened to have a helicopter, as they do, uh, he filled it with old car tires covered them in gasoline, and early in the morning, on April the 1st, set light to it. <laughs> so the town woke up to see the volcano is erupting, cue panic everywhere. Uh, the, the Coast Guard launched a helicopter with some geologists to go and investigate, and they get to the top of the crater to look down and see a big sign in the snow, April Fool's. <laughs> The best thing is, uh, six years later, a few hundred year, um, miles to the south, Mount St. Helens really did blow up in Alaska. There was a ma- um, in uh, Washington State, there was a massive explosion, massive eruption. And a lawyer wrote to Porky to say, yeah, the first time it was funny, this time you've really gone too far. <laughs> um, April Fool's is great fun, but the greatest April Fool's ever is Easter Sunday. If Jesus did not rise from the dead... And you are a Christian here tonight. You are a complete fool. An utterly deluded fool. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are more to be pitied than all people. If Jesus didn't rise again, then April fools, you are idiots. We're all fools. But if he did rise again, well, you'd be a terrible, terrible fool not to put your trust in him. Let's pray, and uh, we're going to look together at uh, Psalm 22 to think about these things further. Our Father God, we thank you that uh, the risen Lord Jesus is not just a, an idea, um, a spiritual notion that he is with us tonight by his Spirit. Risen Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to understand the truth of your resurrection, that we might be a people of joy and confidence, a people for whom not even death can rob us of hope. Amen. Now, the resurrection has always been at the heart of Christianity, but these days, I think a lot of people wish that you could kind of make it one of those optional extras. If you ever buy a new car, you know, the sort of optional extras. We'd like to, I mean, it's just quite hard to believe. A guy dies and then comes back to life and doesn't die for thousands of years. That's doubly impossible. And yet it's right at the heart of Christianity. And whether you're looking into the Christian faith yourself or whether you're having conversations with friends and colleagues and trying to convince them of the truth of the gospel, the resurrection is a kind of awkward thing, really. I mean, how do you convince rational, scientific people? Yet the heart of my belief is a dead man coming back to life. But I wonder, too, if there aren't 
a number here who would call yourselves convinced Christians. You do believe that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, first Easter Sunday. But you're a little bit hazy on why it matters. I was chatting to a Christian friend um, earlier this week, and he said, oh, it's great, Easter, uh, celebrate all Jesus has done. Actually, he kind of did it all on the cross, didn't he? I'm not really sure what he did in the resurrection. Well, I guess it proves the cross worked, didn't it? I mean, is that, is that all that the resurrection is? Uh, God's official seal of approval that the cross worked. What is the unique value of the resurrection? What difference would it make if Jesus, as we saw last week, had died and paid the punishment for sin, but hadn't then risen? What difference does it make that Jesus rose from the dead? What would be different if Jesus hadn't risen? Well, everything, absolutely everything. And Psalm 22, the second half of Psalm 22, is going to show us, as we look at it together, how the resurrection of Jesus, in particular this psalm, shows us that the resurrection of Jesus is God's assurance that even indescribable suffering will one day give way to indestructible hope. Even indescribable suffering must give way to indestructible hope. That's the message of Psalm 22 at Easter. And in a world where darkness is prevalent and death is the final enemy, the final taboo, where death casts a long shadow over all of us, Jesus' resurrection gives you and me concrete, certain, indestructible hope in the face of the greatest enemy we have. Now, the story so far um, is that Jesus has died, just as the scriptures predicted. We, we saw the, the reading earlier that Loz uh, read to us from Luke. At the end of Luke's gospel, as the risen Lord Jesus appears before the disciples. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. And the first section of Psalm 22, as we saw last week, is one of those key prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures telling us that the Messiah must suffer for sin. It's a psalm written, as you'll see from the, from the heading, by David. And it's a prophecy predicting the death of great David's greater son, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. Indeed, it's such a clear prediction, as we saw last week, that uh, Dennis the Carthusian, the wonderfully named um, medieval monk, said, given how accurately the first half of Psalm 22 depicts what would happen in the crucifixion, it shouldn't actually be seen as prophecy at all. It should be included in the history books of the Bible, in the Gospels of the New Testament. It's more history than prophecy when you read it. And the first 21 verses, we won't go through them again, but they depicted the spiritual, the emotional, and the physical destruction and agony of the Lord Jesus Christ as he endured the wrath of God, the rightful judgment of God for sin in our place on the cross so we could be forgiven. And the first section begins, verse 1, with that haunting cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends... Verse 15, with him laid in the dust of death and all his belongings picked over, verse 18. 
Liberal theologian Albert Schweitzer said, Jesus' quotation of Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Shows that he died as a deluded apocalyptic whose messianic expectations were unfulfilled. It's quite a statement. And he's talking bobbins. Could scarcely be more wrong. Yes, Jesus cried out Psalm 22.1, an anguished cry that God has cursed him that he is cut off from the Father. But Jesus chose to quote a psalm that doesn't finish with bleakness and suffering and devastation. He chose to quote a psalm that finishes with hope and joy. And the fact that Jesus chose to quote Psalm 22 when he was hanging on the cross shows his confident expectation that just as he would see the suffering of verses 1 to 21, so he would see the vindication and the victory of verses 22 to 30. You imagine Jesus as a young boy, his human consciousness beginning to grapple with the fact that he is God in human flesh and the Messiah, the one to whom all the Old Testament points. You imagine him reading Psalm 22 and and the awful realization dawning on him as a young boy that this is what he will go through one day. The overwhelming reality that that is his life's destiny. But as he read on in the psalm, there is the joyful assurance to him that death would not be the end, that his indescribable suffering would not be the full stop on his life. It would give way to indestructible hope and resurrection life. Now, I'm not going to go into the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ tonight. Um, we circulated in Time Out. Um, you, you may have missed it. Have a look through your emails if you did. Uh, in Time Out, there's a link to a chapter from Adrian Warnock's book on the resurrection. So you can read and study the evidence. Uh, if you don't get Time Out, you can just sign up on a sheet on the door and I'll email you the, the chapter. It's a short chapter. But it just reminds you of the evidence for the resurrection. Do read it because it is so, so important to know that you can be certain that Jesus rose from the dead. So you can give an answer to others who ask, but also, let's be honest, that we can give an answer to the doubts that we share as Christians. We need to be confident in our faith and have a certainty that can withstand the storms of life and an intellectual credibility that can withstand the scrutiny of rational investigation. So we're not going to look at the evidence. We're going to look at the impact. What does the resurrection do? So three points. Firstly, God's people rejoice in the rescue of the suffering servant. So chapter uh, Psalm 22, verse 22. Uh, The desperate whispered pleas of verses 19 to 21. Help me, deliver me, rescue me, save me. And they give way to something altogether more triumphant. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. The isolated, persecuted sufferer now finds himself in the midst of the great assembly. No longer on his own, no longer crying for rescue, now praising the God who has vindicated him. The God who has heard, has rescued, has delivered has saved. And the praise in this section is like a a great rock dropped in a pool of water, rippling out further, or or a flame that spreads. It it begins with the, the flickering little flame of the anointed one, the Messiah, whom God has rescued in verse 22. But soon the fire spreads and other voices join. 
Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. It's all true believers are being called. Join in this praise. Join with me in praising God. And two things are stressed in the praise that follows. First, God is praised. Verse 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Second, though, it's, it is not just someone else's party. The blessings of the king spill over to his people. Verse 25 to 26, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. If even the poor of society get to share in this feast, then it is a feast for everyone. Look, just from these first few verses, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an encouragement to all to trust in God, to rescue and redeem. You can trust God to rescue and redeem. The king, he's not just the Messiah, he's also the model Israelite. He's the one who goes first, the template, who shows us, if you trust God, this is what happens. He rescues. So pray to him. But just as importantly, understand from these verses how he answers prayer. You know, from the perspective we have, it's pretty obvious that uh, God heard Jesus cries on the cross and God rescued him, that God raised him up and that God redeemed him. But as Jesus died, it was anything but obvious that God had heard him. In fact, it must have seemed for all the world that God had abandoned Jesus that first Easter, that God had failed to hear, failed to answer, failed to rescue Remember that when God seems deaf to your cries. When you cry and you pray in faith and it still happens. Remember that. Jesus' death and resurrection teach us that God is a God who answers prayers, but it also teaches us that his ways are not our ways. But God's ways are not just different from our ways, they are better. They are far better. Trust what God is providentially doing behind the scenes as he works his purposes out in history. In the words of Ephesians 3, God answers our prayers, but in his answers, he does immeasurably more than all we could ask or even imagine. So pray to God. Pray to the God who did not answer Jesus by bringing him down from the cross and ending his suffering but the God who let Jesus hang on the cross and bring salvation to you and me. And then the God who brought him glorious and triumphant from the grave. Pray to the God who hears the cries and answers them. God's people rejoice in the rescue of the suffering servant. Secondly, all people rejoice in the death of death. And now the ripples of praise spread out further than just, than just Israel. They reach distant shores. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. God is the creator of all people. Whoever you are and wherever you are from tonight, God made you. And in the resurrection, 
Jesus Christ is appointed as Lord and judge of every one of us. And so everyone should praise him. And we come to the the stunning claim then in verse 29. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Now, the point about the rich here, why are they singled out? I think it's that they cast aside their self-sufficiency to join the poor of verse 26 at the table of the king. Well, why would they do that? Why would the rich join the poor at the table of this king? What can he offer that means they're willing to, to ditch their dignity and join the great unwashed? Why would the great and the good come to this table? Well, they'll come and they'll worship and they'll share in humble gratitude because it doesn't matter how rich you are. None of us can keep ourselves alive. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, well, that is everybody. For the ultimate statistic, one out of every one person will die. No one has an answer to death. I read an interview from Vanity Fair a couple of weeks ago that Barbara Streisand has been cloning her dogs. It's, you know, it's just, it confirms all your prejudices about celebrities. Uh, so her much-loved uh, pooch named Samantha, which I think is a strange name for a dog, but who am I to judge, uh, died last year and she couldn't, she couldn't bear the loss. So she had the genetic material taken in a lab in Korea, two new Samanthas made named Miss Violet and Miss Scarlet. Um, it is just a bit weird. I mean, isn't it? It's just a little... But the interesting thing is that she goes on in the interview to say that she really regrets it. And the reason that she regrets it is that although Miss Scarlet and Miss Violet are genetically the same material as Samantha, they're not the same. Their personalities are different. Samantha has gone. You, You can't cheat death even with a pet doesn't matter how much money you've got, death is death. It's final. It's the end of hope. And, you know, it's like you watch TV medical dramas. That's where the extent of my medical knowledge. But TV medical dramas. Uh, so you have uh, the sort of ordinary hospital um, doctors. Well, I say ordinary, but unfeasibly good-looking, but ordinary hospital doctors. So treating the patient. And then uh, the patient has a heart attack. And so the cardiac arrest team get um, rushed into the room, and they and they you know, work on them, and in the dramas, almost always, they're they're able to raise them. But every now and then, they fail, and the the person dies. And so they call in the resurrection team. No, there is... No, when when they die, all the frenetic activity stops. There's nothing more to do. Hope dies. Death is final. There's nothing more that can be done. But Jesus punched a hole through the, the back end of the grave. Jesus lived and died and was buried and then came alive and has not died again. Jesus has an answer to death. He is alive yesterday and today and forever. And so the hope that Jesus offers you tonight is an indestructible hope. It's a hope that even outlasts death. There was a a wonderful um, interview with Eddie Izzard. Uh, I I mean, this sounds like a preacher made it up when you read it. Uh, He said, I have a strong sense that we are only on this planet for a short length of time. 
Religious people might think it goes on after death. My feeling is, if that's the case, it would be nice if just one person came back and let us know it was all fine, all confirmed. Of all the billions who've died, if just one of them could come through the clouds and say, you know, it's me, Janine, it's brilliant, there's a really good spa and everything, that would be great. Although, what if heaven was only three-star, okay-ish, as Eddie Izzard would say. But the resurrection of Jesus is the answer to Eddie Izzard. Of all the billions who've died, one has come back. But better still, he has come back, and he has come back to give eternal life to every one of us who wants it. If you trust in him, then you can know indestructible hope, even in the face of death. Finally, peoples not yet born will rejoice in God's righteous rescue. The praise doesn't just spread outwards around the globe. It also spreads downwards through the generations. Verse 30, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. That is you and me. As we sang tonight, we were fulfilling the words of this psalm. How wonderful. We're in the Bible. Now, we often misunderstand, I think, as church people, the phrase at the end of verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness. As Christians, we tend to hear the word righteousness and immediately think, okay, that must be about God making us righteous, which he does. I mean, the death and resurrection of Jesus makes us righteous if we trust in him. Jesus took our sin and our curse on the cross, and he gives us his right status before God. He makes us righteous. But that's not really what's being said here. Righteousness here is a characteristic of God. David's saying, look, when future generations, people like you and me, when we look back and see what God did in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will say he acted righteously. He vindicated his just sufferer. We will praise the the righteousness, the moral goodness of God and say he is a just judge, a good God. I wonder if you realize how very, very wonderful that is. I think the world is feeling a bit less stable and a bit more scary than it has for a while. It seems that unprincipled, powerful people are winning. I mean, who honestly thinks the Rohingya Muslims are going to get their place back and will see justice for what was done to them? Or the Christians in... Egypt or North Korea or Nigeria? Who honestly thinks that the people who are really responsible for um, the murder attempt on those two Russians in Salisbury will be brought to justice? We feel powerless in the face of so much injustice. But ultimately, the world is in the hands of God Almighty who is a God who does what is right. And here in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the assurance that just as God acted righteously and ensured that the innocent sufferer Jesus would not lay in a grave that he did not deserve, so no cry of injustice will go unheard. And eternally, no cry of injustice will go unanswered. There will come a day when all injustice will be rectified. And by the end of Judgment Day, we will not say of anybody, well, they got away with it. For God will do what is righteous. 
That is a wonderful hope for many. Alec Matir points out in his commentary that when you get to the final verse of this psalm, he has done it. It is a million miles from the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But oh, it's not so very far from Jesus' final words on the cross in John. It is finished. And here in Psalm 22 is victory, resurrection, and hope for all nations and all generations. A hope grounded in the man who suffered indescribably for sins in verses 1 to 21. Who lived and died, but who now lives forevermore. If you like, Psalm 22 is the ultimate consumer review. Look what happens when you trust this God. Jesus shows that you can trust this God, you can cry to him, you can put your trust in him even with death facing you down and know that there will be resurrection life forevermore. Okay, what does that mean for us as we close? Well, everything. But let's just focus on a couple of things briefly. Firstly, indestructible hope has a name. Indestructible hope has a name. Hope is not just a concept for Christians. Hope has a name, Jesus. It is the risen Lord Jesus who meets Mary outside the tomb. The risen Lord Jesus who breathes hope and courage into the terrified apostles. The risen Lord Jesus who grips Saul on the Damascus road and transforms him. And the risen Lord Jesus who is here tonight to give you forgiveness and new life if you will only ask him. You could have no confidence in a dead Christ, but the testimony of millions of Christians for thousands of years now is that our hope is indestructible because you can know the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have a living relationship with him. So that was a, what is it at a heart to be a Christian? To be a Christian is to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who has triumphed over the grave and who gives us forgiveness and new life. That is what it is to be a Christian. We're called to trust in, to love, and to obey Jesus. Do you know him? If you can't say, I know Jesus with that sort of certainty, then then there is something wonderful still on offer for you that you haven't yet found. Put your trust in him and know him in his life. Indestructible hope has a name. But secondly, lastly, indestructible hope will win. One writer calls Easter Sunday the day the revolution began, and it's a great description. The resurrection, Easter Sunday, proclaims to those of us who have already seen or experienced the pain of death that there is a hope that is real and robust and indestructible that changes everything. The reign of death is now officially over. The revolution has begun. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is hope no matter what you are facing. I know a guy who answers the question, how are you doing with, uh, oh, nothing a good resurrection won't sort out. <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> which could sound trite and the wrong, uh, taken wrongly. But actually, it's absolutely right. There is nothing so broken, so difficult, so irredeemable in your life that a good resurrection won't sort it out. And if you think you don't know what I'm facing, what I've done or what's been done to me, let me ask you, is your situation more hopeless 
than what Mary and the disciples faced after Jesus had died that Good Friday. But then Sunday came. So often we give in to hopelessness because we cannot imagine how anything good can come out of what we're facing. Or we cannot imagine where the power could come to turn around things. Relationships are dead in families, in marriages, in friendships. Hopes are dead. A life we thought we might have has died. Or we face the death of a loved one. Or we face our own death. But Jesus rose again. As Loss told us earlier, the only thing that remains in his grave is your sin if you trust him. The reign of sin and death is over. And in Jesus Christ, there is indestructible hope. A hope that breathes life into our situations and our relationships right now, right here, right tonight. But also a hope that looks to the future. Things won't always work out in this life. But the day is coming. The day is coming when we will share in the resurrection physically and fully. And everything that is wrong and broken will be made right and pure and good. And we know that there will be unimaginable joy forevermore. I was at the, the funeral not so long ago, a couple of weeks ago, of um, the son of friends, teenage boy, who after a horrible battle with depression took his own life. That is about as bleak and miserable as anything could be. You know the extraordinary thing? There was hope at that funeral. Not silly, glib, reality-denying hope, but real, solid hope, because it was a hope grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to close tonight by reading uh, the words that they had read at that funeral. Words of indestructible hope in Jesus Christ, even in the face of death. And words that can be your words if you trust in him. Paul writes in Romans 8. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our Father God, we thank you that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is hope, indestructible hope. Help us to, to see him risen and ascended and to trust him for whatever we are facing. Thank you there is no sin that is mightier than his resurrection power. Thank you that there is no struggle or suffering which can stop us sharing in his resurrection victory. Thank you that not even death can be between us and the Son of God who loves us, who gave himself for us, and who in his resurrection calls us to join him forever. Amen.